0: This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Ruth Reeder, and you're listening to Fast Break, a look at some of the most innovative ideas that bring about social change. This week, we're reviewing what we learned about COVID this past year. First, we'll chat with an emergency physician and public health researcher about her experience. Then we'll delve into how two popular governors responded to the crisis and how the public responded to them. This is your Fast Break. As part of Fast Company's new series called Lessons from COVID, I talked with Dr. Megan Ranny, who is a practicing emergency physician and director of the Brown Lifespan Center for Digital Health in Rhode Island. As you can expect, she's really busy. And so the only time I was able to catch her was while she was driving between appointments. When we chatted, Rhode Island was seeing a spike of 1,300 cases in a seven-day period. So I asked Dr. Ranny how conditions have changed since the state saw its first wave in the spring.
1: In the first wave, we had no idea how to best treat it. We were just trading tips constantly on the internet, on WhatsApp, to try to figure out the best way to take care of these patients. So there's there's this increased clinical comfort now and our protocols are more stable. We know how to handle them. We know how to don and doff PPE. It's certainly overwhelming and anxiety-producing, but the actual clinical care feels much more stable and certain. However, there are also a lot of really negative things. Back in the spring, our overall ER volume dropped to a trickle. We basically were just seeing COVID. Um, there was very little trauma. There was very little of the normal kind of chest pain, belly pain visits. People were staying away, sometimes to their detriment. Sometimes they needed to come in and they didn't. So while our COVID volume is through the roof and actually higher than it was at the height of the spring surge, we also have a tremendous volume of heart attacks and strokes and trauma and overdoses. And all these other things that would be normal emergency department care, you know, our ER is not normally empty. And so now we have this surge of COVID on top of our normal everyday emergencies, which is a big difference. And it makes it much more difficult because we just don't have the space or the staff. And then the last thing is because community spread is so high right now, everybody's families are also getting sick. And a lot of our staff are getting sick much more personal impact on many of our staff. And we're having a lot more trouble having adequate nurses and techs and physical therapists and pharmacists. Their families are out and about and going to work. And so they're getting sick from our high community rates of COVID.
0: Given how hospital and medical resources have been stretched thin, I wanted to know how the second wave was affecting her versus the first.
1: You know, the practice of going into the ER, it's different now. I I said to my husband the other morning, I was like, man, it's tough to walk back in some days. You know, I, I have these sores behind my ears. Just the pressure of all the different, you know, I wear two different masks and a face shield, and the pressure of those on my glasses has made sores behind my ears. And there's this little thing, but the thought of putting PPE back on, sometimes you go, oh, I just don't want to. Like, and you know you're going to do it, and you're going to go take care of your patients, but it's just shifted the tenor of our work. The other big thing that's different, part of being an emergency physician is knowing that you're going to deal with angry patients. Not everybody's going to like you. People are going to be annoyed about the weight or they're just going to have personality disorders or they're going to be in pain and mean because they're in pain. And you just kind of expect that going in. In the spring, nobody was mean. Everybody was appreciative. It was just like gorgeous thing of I could take care of people and feel like I could truly be an ally with them. They weren't.
0: Covid nineteen has undoubtedly put strain on our healthcare system, but before Covid, there were already massive problems in the healthcare industry. So I wanted to know from Dr. Rani if she thought there were different issues, or if the old issues had become exacerbated from the pandemic.
1: Covid nineteen has ripped the band-aids off of some of these pre-existing issues. The fact that we have inadequate primary care, the fact that we have inadequate data infrastructures. The fact that our public health departments are persistently underfunded and understaffed, the pre-existing burnout of physicians and, and nurses, structural racism, the, the effect of racism and economic inequality on health—these were all things that existed already and that many of us have been warning about. And COVID has made impossible to ignore. But there are other things too that we haven't been, still haven't paid attention to. And I think my biggest fear is, is that we'll make it through this pandemic. And that people will go, okay, we don't have to worry about the healthcare system anymore and not use this as an opportunity to turn into a proactive system where we talk about all of these things that bring people to my ER every day and try to do something about it.
0: When I asked if there had been any new procedures or ways of working that could have potentially been more long term in dealing with the crisis, she said there were a few positive developments. One major one was allowing nurses and physicians to practice across state lines, something that she sees as probably sticking around. Another was easing the path for telehealth services and remote care. She also highlighted how hospitals and medical groups have dropped their traditional competition and instead are now collaborating and sharing data. But when it comes to implementing more preventative care into the system...
1: I'm not convinced that it will be. What what we're actually seeing is rates of preventive care are dropping. We've seen a decrease in mammography, colonoscopy, childhood vaccines, dental care is woefully underutilized right now because people are afraid to come into the doctor's office. So I think it's going to require some real messaging and thoughtfulness on the part of both our elected officials and our healthcare leaders. The one thing that, that I am hopeful about there though, is for, or my hope, is that we have seen the harm of Persistent underfunding of public health infrastructure. Again, I'm hopeful that we will take the investments that we have made during the pandemic and sustain them so that we don't end up in the same spot, you know, two or three or five years from now. But a lot of that, unfortunately, depends on politics.
0: Ultimately, Dr. Rani said we need to acknowledge the devastating impact the pandemic has had on both patients and healthcare providers.
1: You know, we're at almost 300,000 deaths now. And millions of infections, each of those has a ripple effect. And so we owe it to our country to take a moment to adequately grieve those lives that were either lost or forever changed because of COVID. We can't just brush it under the rug. But we also need to acknowledge the sacrifice of healthcare workers. If I've learned anything in my career, it's that you can't deny grief and pain forever. And when people try to do that, it seeps out somewhere else. And I don't want us to have a generation of health healthcare providers whose experiences have been repressed in that it, it comes out in other self-destructive or career-destroying ways. Our patients and our providers deserve better.
0: This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home Internet. Find the plan that's right for you at Verizon.com. Throughout the pandemic, state and local leaders have had varying approaches to the public health crisis. Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo are perhaps two state governors who have received the most attention, but in strikingly different ways. Here to share her thoughts about this is Fast Company deputy editor and host of the podcast, Secrets of the Most Productive People, Kate Davis. Welcome to the show, Kate.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. This is my first time on Fastbreak. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I love having you. This is great so i want to talk about your essay you're talking about new york's andrew cuomo who is like such a such a media force and then Mm -hmm. michigan's gretchen whitmer who has had her own share of media attention and you talk about how these governors have had similar policies around covid 19 but have been treated pretty differently both in the press and by their constituents and you've like wildly had the benefit of living in both states during the pandemic and I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you've seen these two individuals represented differently.
2: Yeah, so born and raised in Michigan and then I moved to New York and lived in New York for over fifteen years and just recently moved back to Michigan. So I was in New York during the height of the pandemic this spring I moved back to Michigan at the end of the summer. So for the most part, I've honestly been really proud and impressed with both Andrew Cuomo and Gretchen Whitmar and, And I think aside from my personal connection to these two states, it's they're worth talking about side by side, because, as you mentioned, they are the two governors that have arguably been most in the spotlight during the pandemic. And as you kind of mentioned, like I was really proud to watch from New York, watch what Governor Whitmer was doing in Michigan because the way and the, the I've always kind of been like protective of the image of my home state and the way it's like perceived and talked about in the media. And both of them were really similar in their response. They both took very strong stances on mask mandates, on lockdown restrictions, but the way that America was introduced to them first is incredibly differently. So you think Governor Cuomo, if you didn't know who he was before COVID by March, he certainly did. You know, his briefings were broadcast nationally. He was very instantly like lionized as a hero of the fight against COVID. For most Americans, the way they were introduced to Michigan's governor was in April when there was a protest at the state capitol over her lockdown restrictions, and it was to the oh so familiar chance of lock her up. Now, a lot of this was led by President Trump supporters, and President Trump has had a humongous role in fanning the flames of the backlash against her. But, you know, Trump is no fan of Cuomo either. I think the the way that the public has perceived the, these two governors and the way that people have reacted to them— when really their policies and their approaches are similar is what I'm arguing basically in the essay is it's a little case study for sexism in America is you take these two governors that had very similar policies, very similar reactions, responses, and the way that they've been treated is night and day. And do you think that's just by the president? Or do you think that that is also media
0: portrayals or is it just sort of like the instances that were highlighted like obviously she had that incredible kidnapping scandal that was just I mean
2: yes stole some some (laughs) limelight so the interesting thing about it is you would think from the surface that She's wildly unpopular. And New York's governor is wildly popular. But the actual fact of it is their approval ratings are are pretty identical. And they're pretty high approval ratings. People in Michigan, around 60%, have a a very high approval rating of the governor. So it's not like everybody in Michigan hates her and everybody in New York loves Andrew Cuomo. As a former New Yorker, I can tell you, a lot of New Yorkers do not love Andrew Cuomo (laughs) before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and I'm sure after the pandemic. But the shape of the coverage of the people who don't like them, A, B, the way that dislike manifests itself. So if you think about, and you just mentioned it, if you think about the two kind of most recent and most prominent backlashes against them, right? For Andrew Cuomo, it was the protest in Staten Island for a group of people who want to drink at a bar and they can't. Maybe kind of mentioned we hate de Blasio and Cuomo and they should be arrested sort of thing. But no death threats came against them, right? the small fraction of people who don't like Michigan's governor, they took that dislike and they didn't like have a rally and say, we don't like her. I mean, they did that. But they also plotted to kidnap, murder and overthrow Michigan's government. Can you imagine like, can you even fathom that happening to Andrew Cuomo? Can you even fathom that happening in New York? And the reason why was because she said the same things. She said, wear a mask, keep socially distant. Like, we can't open bars right now. You know, it was the same things that they did. And the reactions are so much different. And it's not, again, it's not because people hate her and people love him. It's just the anger towards women is manifests in such a vastly different way than the anger towards men.
0: I think it's really interesting. This thing you just said, which was about, obviously sexism is playing a huge role here. I also kind of wonder about two other aspects, which are that One, Michigan is seen as purple, and I kind of wonder if that plays a role. And the other is, has to do with the states themselves, because New York gets a lot of attention for being New York, right? I mean, look at the way that Giuliani was lionized during his Mm -hmm. term and during 9-11, and then obviously Cuomo, and both of them obviously, you know, have bravado and amplify that. But I don't know, what do you think?
2: So yeah, there's two parts there and one the first thing you say about Michigan being purple and New York being blue is kind of the first thing everybody goes to, right? Is like, oh well, it's because like Michigan's a swing state and there's a lot of Republicans there and and you know, that sort of belief. But again, in the same way that both Whitmer and Cuomo have similar approval ratings, Michigan is not as purple as you may think it is, and New York is not as blue as you may think it is. Actually in this last election, Trump gained about 400,000 votes in New York and he lost about 400,000 votes in Michigan. So proportionately maybe, but there's certainly a lot of Trump supporters in, in Republicans and people that are not Democrats and left-leaning in New York as well. So so that that issue, I don't think that it really makes much of a difference, you know, again, and like she has a very high approval rating in Michigan. So I don't think it's necessarily like there are more people here primed to dislike her. New Yorkers, you know, stereotypically what like have an ego and believe it's the, the greatest city on earth, the center of the universe, you know, all of that kind of comes with New York itself. And then, yeah, you add kind of a male approach to it on top of it. And Cuomo is 100% somebody who has an ego. I mean, I, I say in my essay, one of the hallmarks of his time in office has been putting the Cuomo name on bridges. You know, I mean, he's not a humble person by nature. But I think that's an interesting part of it too, because I don't think it's necessarily just, oh, she's a nice Midwesterner and he's a brash New Yorker. I think if it was a woman in New York and a man in Michigan, we would be seeing it the opposite way because. That kind of bravado is something that we not just tolerate, but encourage from men. And again, in the same way that you cannot imagine death threats against Cuomo for telling you to wear a mask. You also cannot imagine Michigan's governor saying like, I am so great. I did such a wonderful job, like congratulating herself. That's something we're so not comfortable with a woman doing. And then you think about. Cuomo has written a book already. We are still in the thick of the pandemic. Cases are rising. And he has written a book about his leadership during this COVID crisis. And he's going on a publicity tour about his book and his leadership. Can you imagine a woman governor at this point in the height of the crisis still while cases are rising saying, I wrote a book about what a great job I did.
0: Right. So so what has Whitmer done? Like what has her response been? And do you think that that's more in keeping with the way that we sort of prefer our women to respond?
2: I think Whitmer has had to exhibit a level of tolerance and patience that for most people would be unimaginable to have to do. I cannot. So she said after the, the kidnapping plot, which, by the way, the president helped fan the flames of and kind of almost took credit for, which is still like unbelievable. So after that happened, she uh, wrote an essay in The Atlantic and she said that every time that the president mentions my name, my family gets death threats. And I can't imagine the horror of that, you know, of just like living in constant fear of possibly being killed and having to put on a straight face every day and keep, you know, pushing these policies and knowing that people are going to threaten your life. That's kind of to a certain extent what we expect of women in the public eye is to not crack their facade, you know, not get angry. God forbid, never get angry, not get sad, not get, you know, not show emotions, not show weakness, not show anger, not brag, and also put up with death threats, you know, like that's,
0: yeah. yeah. And in regards to death threats specifically, I mean, that has become consistent with the experience of being a woman in power online. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also wonder, like, Kate, as a Michigander, (laughs) as somebody from this state and also a woman,
2: how does this make you feel? I mean, it's as a person in the world, I would hope, you know, I mean, it makes me it honestly like I felt very afraid for her. Like I felt very afraid for her life and very I didn't so much feel ashamed of my state. Like, I can't believe this is happening here because I again, like I don't think it's a unique to Michigan problem. I think it's it's a universal problem. It's a American problem. It is maybe one of the most American problems. But yeah, I mean, it. It makes me sad. It makes me angry that we're still here, that we're still, still here. And like, it's it's haunting too, you know, the especially hearing those familiar lock her up chants. It's like, wow, we're not only did we not make progress, but we're like, it's getting worse in some ways.
0: Yeah, I feel that too. It does sometimes feel like it's just getting so
2: much worse. So early in the pandemic, Cuomo required the admission of patients to nursing homes who tested positive for COVID. And then he barred testing of prospective nursing home patients. So, I mean, it was widely criticized by medical experts and he revoked the order in May. And by the time he revoked the order, about 4,500 infected patients had been sent to nursing homes and about 6,000 residents had died of COVID-19. So he made a mistake. He's admitted it's a mistake, but his mistake costs lives. That's a humongous mistake. That's a horrible mistake, Right. The biggest, most publicized mistake that Michigan's governor has made was she had all of these restrictions in the spring. She was getting backlash about like the recreational and like boating restrictions. And her husband called a marina owner and wanted to get his boat out. And he said, well, I'm the governor's husband. Does that make a difference? And he says he was joking, whatever. It was in poor taste. That mistake, again, her husband's mistake, not hers was brought up and brought up and brought up. The president brought it up in the last presidential debate when he said some like crazy thing about Michigan is in this police state of lockdown where nobody but the governor's husband can can do anything. She's being raked across the coals for some stupid thing her husband said, and Cuomo is responsible indirectly or directly for the death of thousands of nursing home patients. The difference in their mistakes and the difference in how we Punish mistakes.
0: Yeah. So at the end of your essay, you talk about how we measure equity in politics and sort of what we often fight for is representation. Just like get more women in there, mm-hmm. get more women in leadership roles. We need to see them. And we do need to see them, obviously. But you raise a question of whether that is sort of superficial, right? Is that really the thing we should be fighting for? Is representation going to actually get us equity or do we need something more? Do we need do we need a new standard? And I'm really curious because you leave us on a little cliffhanger. If you have thoughts on what that new standard should look like.
2: Well, I mean, I think representation is 1000% necessary. I think it's the first and biggest step, you know, you can't uh, start to think about and view and react to women in positions of power differently if the women are not in the positions of power. So, we're preparing ourselves right now to welcome our first woman and first woman of color, which is really notable as vice president. And this is a humongous you know, glass ceiling that's being broken. And, you know, we should certainly celebrate that as, as a big accomplishment. But I don't think we should really pat ourselves on the back too much for it for doing it because As we've already witnessed, once women are in the spotlight, then, yeah, the true measure of equity isn't, we got all of these women here, look at us, we're done. It's when women and men who are in the spotlight will be treated the same way, viewed the same way, you know, when their mistakes will be punished in the same way, you know, when we will not let them off the hook in the same way for their mistakes but also applaud their accomplishments in the same way. You know, and when we think about like somebody like Kamala Harris, we've already witnessed the hints of tone policing that she is going to be enduring. You know, you think about her and her running mate. You think about the way that during the vice presidential debate with Mike Pence, she very calmly over and over again had to say, excuse me, I'm speaking. Excuse me, I'm speaking. Well, meanwhile, Joe Biden got to say, will you shut up, man? Over and over again in his debate with President Trump. I feel like true equality will be the day when a woman can stand on the stage and tell a man to shut up and not get raked across the coals for it because nobody raked Joe Biden across the coals for it, or at least most people didn't. Most people were like, yeah, finally somebody told him to shut up. You know, I dream of the day when a woman can get angry on TV, you know? Yeah. And not, you know, die for it. Yes. And not and not and not have it end her career, you know? Really, where she can get angry on TV and face little to no repercussions, as white men have been doing for our entire lives. Yeah, <laughs> we can dare to dream, Kate. I know. I might just be that angry woman on TV someday, if only. Honestly,
0: same. I'm ready to get angry you know, on TV. I'm,
2: I'm, I'll be angry anywhere you need me to be angry.
0: <laughs> you and me both.
2: Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's a a level of bravery that we shouldn't expect of anybody, you know? It shouldn't be a a cost of of playing the game.
0: It should not be a cost of speaking, certainly. Yes, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fun conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to make my Fast Break debut. Yes, I (laughs) love it. (laughs) Thanks, Ruth. Thanks, Kate.
0: That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reader.